0: All right, ambition, ambition. This was something that I was led to, and uh, there were a number of things that happened in the last couple months that had me dwelling on ambition and what it means. And um, if you look up the definition of ambition, this is what you'll find if you take out Google right now. (laughs) It's a strong desire to do or achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. It's, what we, it's a pretty simple definition. It's what comes to mind at first. You know, the strong desire to do something, achieve something. And we typically get ambitious about something that we have passion for, something that excites us, something that there's a deeper meaning to. And as a Christian, I've kind of wrestled with this whole concept of ambition. And as we look at what it means, I think it explains on why I've kind of struggled with it. And what I mean by that is, you know, as a Christian, you are you supposed to be ambitious? Are you not supposed to be ambitious? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, this time of year and is the time of year that we look at a new year. And I'm a sucker for the new year. I love a new year. And Chris will be like, "What well, was like yesterday?" I'm like, "No, it's not." <laughs> It's a new year. Um, it's a new beginning. It's a new opportunity. You make new goals and you set out new ambitions, right, to tackle in the next year. And I love that. And uh, good or bad, I just, I love that new beginning, that new start. And um, when I'm looking at ambition, the thing that I struggle with is mainly how the world defines it. And let's look at that. You know, if I were to ask you, in your graduating class, so I graduated in 2006, so in the class of Tracy High School of 2006, who would you describe as the most ambitious person today? Well, in that context, people would kind of search their minds for the most successful, probably, that person that got the maybe highest title. We know that they're um, doing big things in the world. And that definition, that worldly definition of ambition, is that strong to desire to do what? I think we attach success to that. A strong desire to achieve success. And we measure success in a lot of different ways, but titles, achievements, education, money, fame, those are things we attach to being successful. And so when I think about the most ambitious person in the class of 2006, I don't make the list, I know that. Um, but I think we give a, a definition that is not biblical, it's not God-given. And so that's I—that's what I was struggling with. I was struggling with, do I want to be ambition? ambitious if that's what it means and well let's see what the what the bible says about that type of ambition on philippians 2 3 it says do nothing out of selfish ambition or in vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourself do nothing out of selfish ambition 1 John 2.16. I don't know if you want to jot this one down as well. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of our eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father. It's from the world. And I could keep going, <laughs> listing ambition in the way of self-seeking self-promotion, selfish desires that we seek. The Bible is pretty clear throughout that that is not the type of ambition we want. So then I'm like, okay, so if we don't want that, we don't want to pursue to be just the best Casey I can possibly be so everyone loves me and the world says that's an ambitious person. That's the type of ambition I don't want to seek. But there is this God-given passion, fuel, desire within each of us that is right before the Lord. And if I could pick a theme verse for holy ambition or godly ambition, this is the one that I would pick, Colossians 3.23. I think this one's on a slide, too. Colossians 3.23. It says, Whatever you do, do it wholeheartedly as something done to the Lord, for the Lord, and not for men. I like that translation. I like that wholeheartedly, whatever you do, do it to the Lord. Not for men, but for the Lord. You know, Wholeheartedly, that's something that you would also define as uh, well, with excellence, um, with passion. One of the translations actually said enthusiastically, and I liked that. I like that, but I kind of strayed a little from the King James. So I went with the wholeheartedly, but I like the enthusiastic in there too. Whatever you do, do it wholeheartedly, enthusiastically unto the Lord. Now, this is that type of ambition that I want. That's the type of ambition that God wants in each of each of us. And I defined holy ambition, ambition as this. And this is a Casey definition, so I mean, don't make it too official in your notes, but this is what I went with. A strong desire to wholeheartedly do our God-given callings. A strong desire to wholeheartedly do our God-given callings. And this is something that I resonate with and I go, yes, that's the type of ambition that I want. That's the type of ambition that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I don't think we ever need to apologize for being ambitious when we are seeking after the kingdom and what he's called us to. And so when you think about ambition in that type of way, in a way that pleases the Lord, not men, serves the Lord, is God-focused, and then I asked you, don't think about your graduating class anymore, but if you're familiar with the Bible at all, who is the most, some of the most ambitious people in the Bible? Who are the first names that come to your mind? I asked myself that question. And there are a lot of people that came to my mind, but one that I always think of is Noah, and Moses, and Paul. I'm sure some of those came to your mind. We could continue to go on. Some of the big names, if you will, of the Bible. Um, Noah set out to build an ark in a time where God was going to destroy the whole earth. And I love Noah, and I love Moses. And Moses, he was called to go to Pharaoh to deliver his people from slavery and to go before the Pharaoh. He risked his life. But the thing about those names, about Moses, you know, he gets his calling, his big ambitious calling through a burning bush. I mean, the Lord speaks to him with fire in an audible voice through a bush. Now, if you leave that bush unmotivated, there's something wrong with you, you know? And same with Noah. I mean, we don't even get descriptions of how the Lord speaks to him, but the Lord just straight up speaks to him says, Noah, I want you to build an ark. You're going to get two of each kind. I want it to be this long and this high and this wide, etc., etc. And I mean, these, these men of God are getting audible voices from the Lord. And I love that. And I'm not belitt- belittling that in any way. But I have a hard time relating to that. You know, when you're looking at, like, Lord, what is my calling like, that I should pursue wholeheartedly with just godly ambition? I mean, you might get an audible voice from the Lord, but I haven't yet. (laughs) And so I was just searching the scripture and I was just chewing on this this holy ambition and what it is and someone in the Bible that I could really relate to. And I was led to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. He certainly had godly ambition, but we're going to dig into his story a little bit this morning and see how how that ambitious calling was given to to Nehemiah. So please turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. And while you're turning, I'll give you a little bit of background. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the Persian king, Artaxerxes. And a cupbearer was a very important person. It was someone who guarded the king from any poisons that could come in through food or drink. So Nehemiah would actually taste the food, taste the drink that was being presented to the king. He was obviously very close to this king, and he is serving at a time that is a few decades after, if you recall, King Cyrus. Uh, King Cyrus was the king that allowed, allowed the Israelites to go back to their home in Jerusalem and rebuild. And... King Cyrus was the one that started that, and so we have these Israelites going back to Jerusalem and building and reestablishing, Uh, and they built a temple. They were able to build their temple there, but uh, what's happening is they don't have the walls of their city built again. They're still in rubble. They're still destroyed. And at that time, I mean, this is hard to relate to us today, but at the time, they would build a wall around their cities as a protection. And uh, this was a, I mean, a fortress, a, a way to protect their city. They would build watchtowers in this wall so they could guard against the attacks of the enemy that would be coming from outside. So. Jerusalem right now is not at a place that they're feeling secure. Um, They're vulnerable to attack. And uh, what happens in chapter 1 here is we see that Hananiah is a brother to Nehemiah. Oh, And that one is a tongue twister. Say Hananiah and Nehemiah enough and you're going to end up being like Cammie Casey Carly, (laughs) and get confused and tongue-tied. But Hananiah and Nehemiah, I'm not going to try to screw that up this morning, but Hananiah is a brother to Nehemiah, and he comes and visits him. And this is quite a jaunt for him to come. I put a map up there, Owen, of how far he traveled. So his brother Hananiah is living in Susa, And he comes up to Jerusalem to talk to his brother. No, let's say that again. He, yeah, he is coming from Jerusalem to Susa, okay, and to deliver a message. And this is a long travel. You know, when you're first reading the scripture, um, I'm like, well, why didn't he know this before? But it ends up being quite a jaunt. And so it would have been 980 miles by road, 980 miles is what he ended up traveling to deliver this message to his brother in Susa. So when Nehemiah sees his brother, he's going to know it's important. You know, what his brother is coming to tell him is going to be of importance. You don't just say, you know, they don't just pop in at each other's houses, these brothers. Like, this is an important trip he made to deliver this message. So we're going to actually read in verse 2. And we're going to read a chunk of scripture here today, but it's almost written in summary, so I wasn't going to summarize what was already written. So we're going to start in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Nehemiah. It says, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant and that that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I just mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord of heaven. Okay, so he gives him the message that, you know, we're not doing well. Our walls are destroyed, and uh, we are in trouble. We're not protected. And then I love his response. I love the fact that his first response is he's moved in compassion. He's just moved in compassion. Now, After all, this is his brother. These would be his relatives back, back in Jerusalem. But he's just moved, and he weeps. And, and he goes to prayer and fasting. And then we see what he does next. And he just cries out to the Lord in this prayer, and we're going to continue reading. Verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps this covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes hear. The prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Note the fact here that he's repenting. He fasted, he prayed, he cried. And what is the first thing he does? I mean, he's not even living in Jerusalem right now, but he takes personal responsibility for his own sin and the sin of his people, and he just cries out, Lord God, forgive us. Verse 8. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in the revering of your name. Give your servants success, day in granting them favor in the presence of this man. And then there's this little note, I was the cupbearer to the king. <laughs> um so this is the prayer of Nehemiah, and he's just pleading for the people, and he's moved in compassion, and he, he reminds the Lord of his great promises for his people. And, and in the midst of this response, in the midst of this response, we're going to continue and read in chapter 2, because in chapter 2 right away is where Nehemiah gets his big, ambitious calling. And it's not in a way that Moses or Noah got their audible voice or burning bush. But let's see what happens in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Xerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in the presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look so sad when the city where my fathers were buried lies in ruins, and its gates have, not, have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What is it that you want? Now notice this verse. Then I prayed to the God in heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. We're going to stop there. So Nehemiah is, he spent time in prayer, he spent time in the Lord, he spent time mourning and Um, Repenting, and he gets to the place where he goes before the king, and he can't even hide. He can't even hide what's inside of him. He's supposed to. A cupbearer to the king is supposed to be royal, professional. He's not supposed to wear his emotion on his sleeves. That would be disrespectful to the king. You're not supposed to be a mess when you go before the king. Get your stuff together and go in, you know, looking good. That's what a cupbearer is supposed to do. And so it says in the scripture here that this is the first time he had ever come before the king looking sad and distraught. And you can tell that there's just something burning in his soul, that he's been moved. He's being called to something really great. And, and he's afraid because the king could, I mean, kill him or fire him. You know, he could have just been upset with him and said, no, oh, get, get out of here. But he didn't. He said, you know, I can see you're distraught. This must be sadness of the heart is what the king says. And he says, yes. And he was afraid because he was afraid he, he, he was going to react out of anger, but he doesn't. And then the king says, God has favor in this whole situation. The king says, what is it you want? And Nehemiah's next response is so critical and cru- so crucial. He prays. You know, it's the kind of prayer that you would do really quickly when you're like in a really important moment. You're about to go into a. Uh, you know, board meeting, you're about to go into a parent-teacher conference, you're about to go into, that's where my mind goes, Um, you're about to go into whatever it is where you know you're like sweating a little bit under your coat, you know, and um, you just go, oh, Lord Jesus, be with me, you know, that type of prayer, only he wouldn't have said Jesus, he would have said Lord, but he just, he prayed to the God of heaven, (sighs) and then he was able to ask, the king what he wanted and that was his big ambitious calling to rebuild the walls of his city and and we didn't read but the king says all right so how long are you going to be gone basically and he grants him and gives him favor and resources to do so i bet nehemiah i bet he never in a million years thought that he was going to leave being a cupbearer to a king To go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, this is the type of thing that only could come out of a right heart to the Lord and a compassion for people. You know, sometimes I think those holy, ambitious callings come just out of a heart for the Lord and compassion for people at the right time. It was the right thing to do at the right time. And he knew that, and he was brought to that, and he, he, he knew he needed to do something. That's why he couldn't even hide his, his distress from the king. You know, Nehemiah set out to do something that most people would say, ah, forget it. You know, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to king. He could have said, oh, I'm so sorry, Hananiah. You know what? Let's gather some resources. The king has some, no, they probably didn't have telephone numbers, but the king has some people. I'll get you the resources. I'll send you some money. Um, I'll pray for you, brother. Pat him on the back and send him back. But he didn't. He was so moved and compassion that he was willing to leave his royal place to go rebuild these walls. And this wall, I think I have a picture up there at some point. There are these walls that he built were not, um, they were an average of 40 feet tall. 40 feet. Uh, The Jerusalem walls were built thick. They varied in thickness, but we're talking feet. Feet. Thick. Um, They built for miles around the city. I mean, when I'm looking at this calling, I'm going, no, thank you. (laughs) I don't know, that's about the last thing I want to be called to. And um, maybe some of you guys out there are like, yeah, let's do it, you know. But wow, you know, so Nehemiah is leaving his place of uh, authority with the king to go tackle this job, this task. Forty feet high walls around the city. And, uh, you know, like I said before, Nehemiah didn't didn't hold back. He threw his whole self into this ambitious ambitious calling. And like I said, he is so relatable because of the way he received his calling. It was out of a right heart for the Lord. He was in prayer, fasting, um, moved with compassion for the people. And that's the type of callings God gives us. Doing the right thing in the right moment out of a heart for the Lord and the people around you. I mean, you can take that wherever you are. You can take that to your job place. You can take that to your schools, youth. You can take that to wherever you are and say, what is the right thing to do right now to please the Lord and serve these people? And that's what Nehemiah did. He didn't get a burning bush. (laughs) He didn't get an audible voice. He didn't get an angel. He got conviction. Conviction so hard in his heart that he was so moved with compassion that he couldn't stand but to run from his calling. And you know, when we're looking at 2018, I couldn't help but think, you know, I think that this This whole calling of pursuing mustard seed kids, to me, is doing the right thing at the right time out of a heart for the Lord and a compassion for his people. I just, you know, we look, we never in a million years, you know, when pastor was approached by a community member about pursuing a daycare, you know, it was one of those moments where he step back, I've never even considered that, you know, and he went and he started praying about it, he went to the leadership, and uh, the leadership prayed about it, you know, unless I'm missing something, but I don't think anyone woke up at the night with a thus says the Lord, we're to build, a, you know, a daycare, but they were moved with compassion, they prayed, they sought the Lord, and at a moment in time together, the leadership said, this is the right thing to do, for our town and our community, for this time and this place. Because we're compassionate about the people of Balaton and the surrounding communities. Aren't we? I mean, that's why we're here. Ah. And, you know, that's one thing that Nehemiah, inspires. I'm not going to go, we don't have time this morning, you could do a whole series of Nehemiah, I love that man. But anyways, I'll meet him in heaven, I don't know about you, but I'm lining up. But anyways, he... He's such a remarkable man, and you can read the rest of his story, but I just wanted us to look at his calling this morning, just his initial calling, his initial response, and the way he set out to do this task, this ambitious task. And you know, a daycare seems like a cakewalk compared to the walls of Jerusalem when I look at it, but it's, you know what, there are going to be some obstacles. There are going to be some obstacles along the way, and The good thing about it is, like Nehemiah, if the Lord is for it, then who can be against it, right? And um, one of the the real core of Mustard Seed Kids is that we're going to view each child as a unique gift of God. A unique gift of God. See, every daycare center in the state has requirements to meet the children developmentally, academically, socially, and emotionally which are all great things. Don't get me wrong. I want every single one of those, and they will be incorporated in Mustard Seed Kids. But you know what they're missing? Spiritually. Spiritually. Developmental, developing these children spiritually. Yes, I want my child to be academic and be able to get along with other kids, but you know what? At the end of the day, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian... You want your child to be a loving, compassionate person that's going to contribute to society. You don't have to be a Christian to value those things. And all, the thing is, is that if you're not a Christian, you're not giving them the one thing they need. Christ. You need Christ to operate in, in compassion and you know, mustard seed kids is not something we see as a church growth plan. You know, these kids may go to different churches, and that's fine. But we want to look at them and say, okay, this little, this little gal here, you know, she has such a sweet little heart. How are we going to nurture her? How are we going to develop her? You know, the thing is, is kids spend more time in their childcare environments than they do at home during the working week. That's just a fact. I know that. That's just a fact. And so, who are you going to entrust to raise your children while you're working? I want it to be an environment where where families walk in and they hear soft Christian music playing, where there are hugs and high fives, and how was your day? Where our conflict resolution plan is going to include forgiveness. Because you're equipping children to live a life to please and honor the Lord. And you don't have to shove it down your throats, but you can model it to them. You can teach them. And this is the type of ministry that that Victory, we get to be a part of. We get to support and love and pray. And, you know, I'm so excited to see what this is going to do in the lives of the people that come to Mustard Seed Kids. Because hopefully it starts with the child and it just infects the home. And, you know, what you don't realize when you're a parent dealing with daycare providers is you have meetings with them, conferences with them. Um, you're on the phone with them all the time. And the staff of Mustard Seed Kids are going to be so valued The people who work here are going to know that they're important and they're doing an important job. You know, we we hire people to do our taxes and, and um, do a number of important things. But is there anything more important than raising your children while you're working? is an important job, so they're going to be valued, and we get to be a part of all of this. This ambitious calling. I'm so excited for it, and I hope you are too. <laughs> okay, I'll stop talking, but um, ambi- holy ambition is one of those things that I couldn't help but come to this morning, and I think it was just timely with how we look at 2018, and um, If you have any questions about, you know, the daycare and where this is at, um, feel free to ask Pastor Mike, Elders, myself. Um, But we're looking at opening in in September of 2018. So we're pursuing this and um, wholeheartedly believing that the Lord has called us to it at this time, in this place, for a reason. So whatever you're pursuing in 2018, pray for that holy ambition. That, you know what, ambition is a good thing, but it comes down to your heart. Your heart. Are you pursuing the things for yourself? Are you pursuing kingdom things for God? It's that simple. So we, can we look at it in the lens of the Lord and see that we want ambition, and we want it to bring glory and honor to him? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you, Father, that you give us these desires. You place in our hearts things that will glorify you. Lord, I just pray for clarity. And everyone here this morning, whatever they're wrestling with, Lord, whatever oh, they're maybe not total, totally satisfied with in their life, Lord, whatever you're calling them to, Lord, I pray that you would just give them clarity and peace of mind as they pursue things. Lord, I pray that you'd give ambitious callings to people here this morning. Lord, ones that they couldn't walk away from. Ones like Nehemiah where, you know what, it's kind of challenging. It's hard. It's not real comfortable, Lord. But we know, we know because you are faithful it will be worth it. So, Father, I pray that you would just instill those beliefs in you and who you are that equip us to pursue these ambitious callings in 2018. And, Lord, may they glorify you. May they honor you. May our hearts always be just to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.